We're in the middle of a sermon series right now that's entitled Live Out Loud, subtitled Courageous and Contagious. People's last words matter. Last words stand out. Some of Jesus' last recorded words while on earth were instructive. Think of our Lord's words in what we commonly refer to as the Great Commission when he told his disciples to go and make more disciples, Matthew 28, verses 18 and following. Also in the book of Acts, chapter 1 and verse 8, Christ promises the disciples that they will receive power from the Holy Spirit and says that they'll be his witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. So it's with these words in mind, with these final words of Jesus when he was on earth, that we approach this sermon series called Live Out Loud, being courageous and contagious for the glory of God, for the sake of the gospel, so that people might hear and people might know the word of God. So what I'm going to do now is I'm going to read from the gospel of Luke in chapter 8, beginning in verse 4. And if you would please stand and join me as I read uh, aloud, please read silently and stand in the honor of reading God's holy word, beginning in verse chapter 4. This is what the word of God says. And when a great crowd was gathering and people from town after town came to him, he said in a parable, A sower went out to sow his seed, and as he sowed, some fell along the path and was trampled underfoot, and the birds of the air devoured it. And some fell on the rock, and as it grew up, it withered away, because it had no moisture. And some fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up with it and choked it. And some fell into good soil and grew, and it yielded a hundredfold. As he said these things, he called out, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. And when his disciples asked him what this parable meant, he said, to you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of God. But for others, they are in parables so that seeing they may not see and hearing they may not understand. Now, the parable is this. The seed is the word of God. The ones along the path are those who have heard. And then the devil comes and takes away the word from their hearts so that they may not believe and be saved. And the ones on the rock are those who, when they hear the word, receive it with joy But these have no root. They believe for a while and in time of testing fall away. And as for what fell among the thorns, they are those who hear. But as they go on their way, they are choked by the cares and riches and pleasures of life. And their fruit does not mature. As for that in the good soil, they are those who, hearing the word, hold it fast in an honest and good heart and bear fruit with patience. Let's pray. Lord, your word is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandments of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. Lord, more to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Lord, this is your word. Lord, we're thankful to be able to, to bask in the glow of it. We're thankful to be able to hold it. We're thankful to be able to hear it. But Lord, even as your word said, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. Would you give us ears to hear this morning? Would you give us eyes to see, hearts that are open, minds that are open only to you and your truth as we seek to be changed by you? In Jesus' name we pray, amen. You may be seated. I don't know if you heard, 
but Glenn Fry is dead. Six days ago, he died in New York City. He was 67. Uh, if, you're, if you've either lived through or have some appreciation for music from the 70s, you'll recall that he and drummer Don Henley founded the band called The Eagles. That's true. But then also when the band broke up in the 80s, Glenn Fry went on his solo music career. And uh, you might remember one of his hits being You Belong to the City. Just curious, how many of you remember that song, You Belong to Concrete Under Your Feet? No? All three of you. Excellent. Segway. I was 29 years old when I mowed a lawn for the first time. That could calm down. I can explain. Okay. It's not because I was spoiled, rotten, and didn't have chores growing up. It's not because it's because I didn't have a lawn growing up. Okay. So growing up in New York City, uh, there was concrete under my feet. I belonged to the city. So moving here was quite the learning experience 10 years ago, having never lived anywhere outside of the city prior to the move. Now, we decided to move here and uh, to rent an apartment for two years, we thought, just to get to know the area, figure out real estate, figure out what Northern Kentucky was like, and then uh, to seek to buy a house within two years. And in God's kindness, we actually got to do that exactly to the day. Two years after we moved, Memorial Day weekend 2006, we unloaded a moving truck into our apartment. Memorial Day 2008, we unloaded another moving truck into our first home. And the way we found that home uh, was this uh, a certain uh, a man had, uh, who worked for the the builder the builder of the home um, it was new construction he said hey there's a house that I want you to check out it might be it might be wise for you and your family to look into this we think you might like it check it out but I couldn't arrange a time for him to show me so I don't know if this is good or bad but he gave me the key and he just said listen just go just just help yourself go after I was doing youth ministry at the time go after your youth event and go check out the home and see if it's something that you would like. So we at the time had two children, and one of them was, it was Jonathan, who was just a year old or so, maybe just a little over a year. So I went on my own after youth one night, and uh, Sarah was all excited for me to tell her about the home that I was looking at. So I call her from the house, and I'm walking around, and she's saying, well, what does it look like? What do you see? And I'm, dude, you know, there's a living room, there's a kitchen, there's a bathroom with a toilet and stuff, and there's another bathroom with a toilet and stuff, and there's bedrooms, and, you know, so what are the ceilings like? They're towards the top of the room. She said, no, are they vaulted? Yes, okay, so in the, 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 the living room, so she helps me think outside the box. There's cathedral ceilings. Um, there's an, you know, what's the doorways like? Is it arched? There was a nice little arched doorway as you come in from the floor. It was pretty cool. You know, is there an Eden kitchen? What does that look like? Does it look big? So I'm talking to her on the phone. And finally, she says, well, what's the yard like? To me, I mean, this was a postage stamp size lot, but this is more yard than I've ever owned. I think it's acreage. So I just said, it's really, really nice size. It was an okay size. It was perfect for our family. So I said, it's a nice size. I said, there's room for the kids to play. I said, the grass is terrible. She said, what are you, what are you talking about? I said, well, on either side of the house, these other, these other homes have really, really green lawns, lush lawns, really nice lawns. Something about ours is just rough. It's just rough looking. And I don't know what it is. She says, what do you mean? I said, I'm just walking around. I said, it just looks, it just looks dry and dead. It crunches under my feet. I said, it's just, it's, I don't know, something, we got to ask the builder about this. Something is up. It's not right. I don't know much, but I know it should be green. She says, that's straw. I said, exactly. It's, it's, it feels like, hey, it feels just weird. It's just bizarre. It's that there's not a blade of grass in it. It's like something, we're going to work this into the deal, get some money taken off the house. I don't know what's going on. And she said, no, 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 no. 
This is Sarah. She said, just like this. So I can't see her on the other end of the phone, but this is what I'm convinced she looked like. No, 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 no. They seed and they straw. She said it like that. They put seed down, pause, who did I marry? And they straw. That's what they do, Peter. They lay seed down and they put straw on top of the seed so that the seed doesn't get taken away. This was news to me. I didn't, I didn't know. I thought, that, I thought this was just a terrible looking, terrible looking lawn. And she had this, to- this tone of voice of, where did I go wrong? Why did I settle? What has happened? But I don't know. Common sense isn't all that common, okay? So I didn't know anything about that. Who knew? So I was determined to have a nice looking lawn. I wasn't going to be that guy who lives among houses with nice lawns, but his goes to pot. No, sir. It might be my first lawn, but it's going to be green. If I have to take to it with a can of spray paint, the thing is going to be green. So I started doing research and looking up lawn treatments and how to keep your lawn healthy and what do you do and and, and fertilizers and chem lawn treatments and calling different people because when I go in, I go all in. So now I really want this thing to look good. So I'm doing all sorts. I'm up late at night. I'm looking at websites and stuff. I don't know anything about a lawn. Okay. I don't know. I can lay some concrete, but I don't know anything about a lawn. Now I want this thing to look good. So I'm sort of asking around what to do. I don't know. Just no one's helping me. All of my R&D, all of my research and development stopped with a conversation with one Gary Walford. And he heard me talking about me wanting to have a nice looking lawn. And by nice looking, I meant green. And he said this. He said, Peter, I could get grass to grow out of the back of my truck if I water it enough. Done. See, apparently it was that simple. That was his point. He's like, just water it. Just throw out seed and water it. There's seed already down. Well, overseed and overwater. Whatever you spend on water is going to be less than what you spend on all these magic treatments, this, that, and the other thing, sod. Just water the thing and let it get establish a root system, establish a lawn, and it will work. And it did, and it looked really, really nice. In fact, when we sold it six years later, I'm convinced the linchpin was the lawn. I think that is, I think people were on the fence, but they saw the lawn and they said, we have to live here. And that's how it sold. Sometimes in life, even with the best of intentions, we make things more difficult than they need to be. Seed and water. That's all I needed to do to get this thing started. And that's what I did. And lo and behold, it worked just fine. So here's what we're going to do in our time in the Word today. I'm not going to preach the parable of the soils, at least not today. Maybe in a, we have a parable series coming up, by the way, in the spring and the summer, and we might look at it then. Uh, but I'm not going to preach directly through the parable that we read. But what I'm going to do is use the word picture that Christ gives us in this parable to show you five ways you might be making evangelism, living out loud, sharing the gospel with other people, more difficult than it needs to be. Five ways you might be making evangelism more difficult than it should be. See, I looked at the would-be lawn and was so concerned about messing things up that I was prepared to go to great and, quite frankly, unnecessary lengths to ensure a green lawn. But all I really had to do was sow seed and spray water. That's really what I needed to do, and it worked out just fine. It really was that simple. Look in Luke chapter 8, verse 5. A sower went out to sow his seed. That's it. A sower went out to sow his seed. That's all he did. 
It really is that simple. But sometimes we don't see it that way. And longing to see people respond to the gospel, longing to see people come in love with Jesus Christ, longing to see souls rescued from the pit of a fiery hell and sent to heaven, even with the best of intentions, we make things more difficult than they need to be, just like I did with my lawn. So look at Luke chapter 8. One of the things I think we want to make sure we know is that we don't need to complicate things by trying to modify or improve the seed of the word of God. Luke chapter 8 verse 5 says, A sower went out to sow his seed. Then later on in the explanation, if you skip down to verse 11, it says, Now the parable is this, The seed is the word of God. This isn't the only time the word is likened to a seed throughout the scriptures. In fact, many times God uses this metaphor, this word picture, so we might understand some very important things about the word. James chapter 1, beginning in verse 18, says, Of his own will he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of firstfruits of his creatures. And then if you skip down to verse 21, it says, Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness, and receive with meekness the what? The implanted word which is able to save your souls. The idea that the word is implanted into us, likening it to a seed. First Peter chapter 1 and verse 23 says, Since you have been born again, not of perishable, what? Seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. And in the parable of the sower that you have opened before you in Luke chapter 8, please note this. The seed is never the problem. Do you see that? The seed is never the problem. In all four scenarios that Jesus Christ refers to, not once does he say, and some of the seed had mold on it. I don't don't know what happens to seed, but some, some of the seed was ruined, or some of the seed was, for whatever reason, not functioning. The seed is never the problem. The seed is good. It's fruitfulness, or fruitlessness, has everything to do with the soil on which it lands. Now, Some people believe that modifying seeds or modifying plants chemically is a good thing. And in most cases, those that say such things have a dog in the fight and are part of the multi-billion dollar industry that profits from these practices. Monsanto, for example, which is a company that is based in St. Louis, Missouri, employs approximately 22,000 employees who share in the 15.9 billion, billion with a B, dollars worth of revenue that they net year after year. But not everybody is of the same opinion. In fact, not everybody, in fact, in recent years, lots of people just within the general public realize that genetically modifying or chemically modifying food may not be such a good thing after all. And this is constantly on the news, constantly in court, constantly up for debate, and constantly spoken about on the internet that you can read about really with a simple Google search. Some who sow the seed of the gospel seek to modify it in order to make it more palatable or more fruitful or more long-lasting. But in reality, the seed of the gospel is just fine and shouldn't be modified by anyone. The seed is good. The word of God in and of itself is good and needs no modification. In every circumstance, we need to remember that when we're sharing about Jesus, when we're sharing the word of God, This doesn't need to be fixed or modified by anyone for any reason. If someone is not receiving the word that you are sharing with them, it's not because the word is broken. That's the purpose of the parable. The parable says it's about the condition of the person's heart. But sometimes we tend to forget that the word is good 
all the time, all the time God's word is good. And we think, well, maybe we need to modify it. Maybe we need to change it. Maybe we need to make some sort of alteration to this seed before we plant it, before we sow it, so that it really will take root in somebody's heart. But the word of God is good and is able to save as is. Consider Isaiah 55 and verse 11, uh, verses 10 and 11, rather. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. God is not concerned about his word. God is not concerned about whether or not his word will have an effect. He's not asking you to make sure that you spread the word and spread the gospel. Be, be careful because the seed is kind of delicate and we don't want to drop it. And we don't, oh, oh, careful. The word is good and requires no modifications by us. In fact, modifying the seed of the gospel is not only unnecessary, but sinful. In the book of Galatians, Paul warns anyone preaching a gospel different than the one they'd received. The good seed that produced salvific fruit in their lives, they said that person is accursed. Galatians 1 verses 9 and 10. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. And oftentimes, in our zeal to reach people, with a hard-hitting word, we seek to change that word so that we can reach them in a more palatable way, so that we can reach them in a way that they might find more acceptable but in reality, the gospel that is preached is not necessarily always true. And then people sometimes believe it and they fall into one of those categories of the other seeds that fell into those other three soils that don't produce fruit, that's quickly snatched away, or that has an emotional response for a moment, but over time it doesn't bear fruit. Don't unnecessarily add difficulty to sharing Jesus by thinking you need to modify the seed. The seed is good. Keep your finger in uh, Luke chapter 8 and flip open to 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Sometimes people complicate things by thinking they need to be the soil expert before planting gospel seeds. Similar to me, just wanting to have a green lawn. I thought I had to know everything about soil and fertilizer and this and that. And figured anybody who had a green lawn was an expert in these things. When in reality, they just seeded and watered is really all that they did. But I think, oh, I got to really figure this out before I make a move. Sometimes people feel the same way when it comes to evangelism, when it comes to living out loud, that they need to understand everything that's going on in the soil underneath before they plant that seed. But in Luke chapter 8, what does the sower do? We said it before. He sows seed. That's all he does. That's it. He doesn't take soil samples before he sows the seed. He doesn't seem to overthink it. There's a field. He wants to see crops grow. And if you don't plant seeds, you won't grow crops. That's something I figured out. If you don't, here's, here's one way to make sure grass won't grow. Don't plant seeds. But the more seeds I plant, the more odds are that something's going to take root. Something's going to grow. Something's going to sprout. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 3, beginning in verse 5. What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, 
Apollos watered, but who gave the growth? God. God gave the growth. God gave the increase. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives growth. A conclusion we can draw from the parable of the sower is this. Precious few people will believe and be saved. Precious few people will believe and be saved. Now, we're not, I'm not saying, well, there's four types of soil, so 75% of the people who hear the gospel, like, let's not get too much into the numbers here. But the vast majority of people who hear the gospel, do they accept it or not accept it? The vast majority of them do not accept it. It flies in the face of everything that they're, prior to God making a change in their life, the truth of the gospel flies in the face of everything that people would want to hear about themselves. That they're in need of a savior. Uh, that they're sinful, that they're worthy and deserving of hell, but that God offers rescue and redemption and help and hope and the hope of heaven. That's something we say amen to because we're in. (laughs) But on the other side, people hear that that's not, if the Lord's not doing a work in somebody's heart, that's not something that people readily receive. And suffice it to say, it's not uncommon for many to not believe, but we so Anyway, and whether or not the seed bears fruit in a person's life depends on the condition of the hearer's heart and what God is doing in that person's life. And if we're so careful before we plant seeds to make sure we understand exactly what's going on in that person's soil, what's, what's going on right? Wait a minute. Let me hold on. Let me take the seed. Let me, let, me, I mean, let me take the soil, take soil samples, send it off to a lab, analyze this. Folks, time is passing. Time is ticking. Glenn Fry is dead. People die every day. Time is ticking. Hell is hot. Heaven is real. People matter. Plant the seed. And I think oftentimes, sometimes we would love to know, just like any good investor, you want to know that you're going to get what on your investment? A, return. But it's always going to involve a little bit of risk. You don't know exactly what's going to happen. You don't know how this person is going to receive the word. And something we want to, well, let me, I want to understand as much as I can about the soil before I plant that seed. And in our desire to understand, you know what we don't, you know what we do? We what? We withhold the seed and start poking around the soil and trying to figure out things and see what the Lord's doing in this person's life. And should we talk about Jesus now or maybe it wouldn't be good to do that now? And we don't. We don't seek to live out loud in front of that person because we don't know exactly what's going on in the soil. Only God brings about fruit from a seed that is planted. When we read in Luke chapter 8, the parable of the sower, it's probably better referred to as the parable of what? The soils. It's not about the sower. The sower is mentioned in one verse. One verse, verse five in Luke chapter eight, a sower went out to sow his seed. And as he sowed, then he leaves the picture. He doesn't talk about the sower at all. After that, it's all about the seed and all about the soil, all about the seed and all about the soil. In fact, when Jesus explains the parable later on, he never tells you who the sower was. He goes straight to the seed. Now the seed is the word of God. And this soil sample means this. And this type of soil means that who's the sower. Jesus like, it doesn't matter. Focus. Listen, the seed is the word. These are the soil samples. He never identifies the sower. The sower is just, it could be anyone. Anyone who's going to plant. Anyone who's willing to go out and plant seeds of the gospel. But it is not about the sower. It's about the seed. 
We're not to concern ourselves with the exact condition of people's hearts. Like, now you better get it right because if you plant in the wrong type of soil, it's not going to yield fruit. So buckle up. You got to get this right. What are you doing planting there? Are you sure you should plant that seed? Plant seed. Plant seed. We make it more difficult when we decide to be soil experts when we've just been called to sow seeds. While you're in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, I wanted to point out something else to you. Take a look at... We read verses 5 through 7. What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed as the Lord assigned to each. I planted Apollos water, but God gave the growth. Look at verse 7. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. Look at verse 8. He who plants and he who waters are one. What did verse 7 say about he who plants and he who waters? They are what? Nothing, right? In verse 7, neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything. It's inconsequential. It's not about them. Neither he who plants or he who waters is anything, but God gives the growth. Then in verse 8, it says, he who plants and he who waters are one. They're equal, equally Zero. Where they, neither, of, neither of them, the person who plants and the purpose, person who waters is not going to bring about the increase. It is God who brings about the increase. We need to remember that. We need to so broadly and so often and so frequently because some of those seeds are going to take root. And if we're holding back the seeds... I got to make sure I'm a good sower. I got to make sure I'm a good waterer. Uh, I don't know. The best way to not grow crops is to not plant seed. What about you? Are there people in your life that you long to see saved, but you hold back from talking about Jesus? You hold back from planting the word because you're waiting for just the right heart condition, when in reality, you can't see the heart. You would love to be able to see the hearts. You know, I'm going to plant now. But that's not for us to know. We're supposed to sow seed. Closely related to that, sometimes we complicate things by thinking we need the perfect, uh, what I'm calling weather conditions, to plant the seed of the gospel. Uh, Flip over to Ecclesiastes chapter 11. Ecclesiastes chapter 11. See, if you want to find a reason to not tell someone about Jesus or not invite them to church or not give them a Bible or not ask to pray for them, you'll always find a reason. If you're looking for a reason to not do it, you'll always find, I don't want to offend them. I'm, I'm waiting for them to show interest. They haven't mentioned anything. Surely they know I'm a Christian because I talk about it and they haven't asked me about my faith. So I'm not going to ask them. I'm going to wait for them to make the first move. They said they used to go to church and they don't want to anymore because they got burned. They, they have a poor opinion of Christians. They already know I'm one, so they won't listen to me. I'm waiting for God to bring someone else into their life. They might think poorly of me now, and it could ruin a future opportunity that might be better. They're going through a rough time, and they don't need to hear anything else that's difficult, or they're going through a great time, and they won't see their need until they're going through a rough time. We can go on and on and on and around and around and around about why today is not a good day to plant that seed. But in reality, the seed needs to be planted. So if you look at Ecclesiastes... Um, take a look at Ecclesiastes chapter 11. Beginning in verse 4. 
He who observes the wind will not sow, and he who regards the clouds will not reap. As you do not know the way as the spirit comes to the bones in the womb of a woman with child, you do not know the work of God who makes everything. In the morning sow your seed, and at evening withhold not your hand, for you do not know which will prosper, this or that, or whether both alike will be good. Do you see what's being said there? Verse 4, he who observes the wind will not sow. He who regards the clouds will not weep. Uh, That means if the person is so busy just trying to, wait, no, not going to sow today. The wind, it's too windy. Not going to sow today. I'm going to wait until it's really died down. Okay. No, wait, the wind has died down, but it's still a little breezy. That could pick up. I'm going to wait. I'm going to wait. That's coming from a different direction. Ah, ah. I see some clouds in the distance. It could happen. What if I sow and then all of a sudden rain comes? I'm going to wait. I'm going to wait. I'm going to wait. I'm going to wait. He who observes the wind will not sow. He who regards the cloud will not reap. And if we're so busy trying to read the tea leaves, trying to understand the conditions that are going on, not necessarily in the person's heart, right? That's being the soil expert, but just all around in the person's life. We're so careful that we don't want to sow the seed at the wrong time. I don't know. The wind's blowing. I don't know. That cloud could be a rain cloud. I don't know. I don't know. Verse 4 tells us, he who observes the wind will what? Not sow. You'll always find a reason to not sow seed. There's always some reason to not sow. He who regards the clouds will not reap. I love that picture in verse 5, particularly coming out of Sanctity of Human Life Sunday that we spoke about last Sunday. As you do not know the way the spirit comes to the bones in the womb of a woman with child. Who can explain that? Who can explain how God does that? You can't. I can't. But he does. Just as you don't know how God does that, that, you do not know the work of God who makes everything. So verse 6, he says, In the morning, sow your seed. And at evening, Withhold not your hand. And technically, literally, it's sow your seed morning till evening, not sow two times a day. Sow your seed morning until evening. Why? For you do not know which will prosper, this or that, or whether both alike will be good. Friends, we need to pray for God to make us aware of opportunities. And that's a good thing. But we need to add feet to those prayers. We need to do something while we're praying. If we're just praying for an opportunity, praying for an opportunity, praying for an opportunity, we could be overlooking an opportunity that's right there that we're just not content with because it's hard. And as we seek to live out loud in front of people, we don't want to be looking for, oh, I don't know. We don't want to always be looking for reasons to not plant that seed. Pray for opportunities, but don't wait for the perfect time. Sow seeds so broadly, so often, And leave the rest in God's hands. People oftentimes say, just kind of a general life proverb. Hey, you know what? You can never be too what? You can never be too careful. You can never be too safe. Solomon says, yes, you can. Yes, you can. Sow the seed. See, I think the enemy would love nothing more than for each and every one of you to come up with a reason why you shouldn't share the gospel or shouldn't live out loud in front of the person that's on your heart right now. He doesn't care what the reason is. It doesn't have to make sense. 
He just nods. Yes, that's a, yes, that's a perfect reason. What with the way the dollar is doing worldwide? Yeah, who would evangelize now? That's right. Yeah, that's a perfect reason not to evangelize. I wouldn't do that. I'd wait till the market picks up. Yeah. Oh, yeah, no, you, you really shouldn't. What, with what they're going through right now? No, 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 you should. It's a bad time. Bad time. Bad time. Bad time. Yeah, you're right. That's a bad time. Oh, yes, it's a bad time. He would love nothing more than for you to think that the person you want to share the gospel with shouldn't hear it right now. But the person who observes the wind doesn't sow. The person who observes clouds and spends all their time trying to analyze the perfect opportunity to sow seed doesn't sow seed. Sometimes we complicate things by being obnoxious in our approach. Uh, by being obnoxious in our approach, because we are sharing the gospel, because we're sharing truth, we think, well, my truth is so important, it doesn't matter how I share it. And that's not true at all. Uh, 1 Corinthians 1, in verse 18, says this, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Verse 23 says, We preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews, and folly to Gentiles, but to those who are called both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. You need to understand something about the gospel that we preach, the gospel that we seek to live out loud in front of people, the example that we want to be, the seeds that we want to share. Those seeds, by design, offend people. Does that make sense? The seed of the gospel, by God's design, offends people. It wakes them up. It cuts through to them. The word of God, we're told, is a double-edged sword that could pierce through further than anything else. And oftentimes, that's painful. The gospel in and of itself, it's good news, but it's not immediately good news to people who hear it. Rosaria Butterfield spoke about this at the recent conference over in Louisville for uh, ACBC. She said when she heard the gospel, it was terrible news. Terrible news. It was hard news because she had to abandon a way of life and a circle of people and ways that she'd been thinking. She had to cast them all aside because she now loved Jesus. She thought that was not immediately good news. This was not news that she heard and all of a sudden threw up her hands and said, this is glorious. Granted, she was happy to be saved, but there's a lot of residual effects out of that that she said, this is not immediately awesome news. Why am I talking about this in this way? Because I want you to know that the word that you preach, the life that you live as you seek to glorify God and reach people, in and of itself, the word of God says is a stumbling block. The word that we preach, the gospel, is a stumbling block to people. So here's what I'm saying. Don't add to it with your attitude. Don't add to it with the way that you then present that truth. God doesn't need your help to offend people. And if you start to help God in offending people, do you know what people are going to see? They're not going to see the offense of the gospel. They're going to see what? The offense of you. And so, well, that's divine. They stand before the Lord on their own. Yeah, I, I know. We want them to be saved, though, right? Like, we're for that. We want them to... We don't want to stand in the way. We don't want to block grace. It's their problem. It is their problem. And I'm concerned that it's their problem. Don't add to that by being obnoxious in your approach. Let the word itself, the truth of the word of God, offend people so that they're wrestling with the news, not the mailman, 
right? They're wrestling with what they read in the letter that they've received, but not the person that received it. Now, sometimes persecution is going to come. Sometimes people are just going to have a problem with you. And we know from a past sermon that they don't really have a problem with you. They have a problem with who? God. I'm just saying make sure it's that they have a problem with God and they're not looking at you saying, no, I really think it's you. I think you were a jerk when you did that. So I don't think it's God because sometimes it can be us. Does that make sense? We don't want to get in the way of someone believing and loving the word. Well, God can do anything. Yes, God can work around you. Do you want to be the God that God has to work around? I don't want to be that person. I want God to work through me. I want God to work through you. You don't have to do the heavy lifting. I got to be bold. Your life, live for the glory of God, is a bold statement. You're going out of your way to talk to somebody about the Lord and about the gospel is a bold statement. Because to share the gospel, you're going to tell, tell people that they're in need of a Savior. And if they're in need of a Savior, that means that they are what? A sinner. So you're going to call them a sinner. You're going to call to their attention that there's a standard that they have to live according to that they could never meet and that God met that standard through his son. But ultimately, you're telling people that they're sinners, hell-bound, hell-deserving, and that the only way to escape it is nothing they can do but Jesus Christ. That message, even served up on crystal, is offensive. Let's not add to that. But sometimes we make it more difficult than we need to be, or than it needs to be. Romans chapter 1, verse 16, for I am not, what, ashamed of the gospel, but here's what I want to call to your attention, for it is the power of God unto salvation. For it is the power of God. I'm trying to emphasize a word there. Let me know if it's coming through. For, for, what, for it is the power of God unto salvation. What is? The gospel, the seed, not the sower, the seed. It's the power of God unto salvation. There's power in the word of God. There's power in the implanted word. 1 Peter 3 and verse 15. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect. Something else I want to call to your attention. You don't have to feel the need to have an answer or a well-thought-out position on every single solitary controversial item that's out now. See, we live in the information age where information is coming at us faster than ever before. You're more aware, I'm more aware of things going on in this world than any human being has ever been throughout redemptive history. And everybody wants to ask questions and everybody wants to tie God into something and how does this work and what about that and what's your position on this and what about that? And it can be overwhelming, right? So I want to be ready. I want to have answers. First Peter three calls you to have an answer for what? Make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for what? The, the what? The hope that is in you. Now, listen to me. I'm not saying you should be an ostrich, right? Talk about, you need to be saved. And then someone asks you a question, you go, ah, and just like clutch your Bible and be an ostrich. Just bury your head in the sand and just do that. I looked it up, by the way. Ostriches don't really do that. What they're really doing is, is tending their eggs. They don't really hide their heads in the sand. So fun fact. This stuff, you little rabbit trails that happen while you're preparing a sermon. But anyway, we don't want to do that, okay? We don't want to be that guy. 
We don't want to be that girl who all of a sudden somebody asks for an issue and we just run and hide. But at the same time, while I want you to have answers and be aware, God calls you to plant seeds of the gospel, not be sharper than any other person out there on every single issue so that you can answer any question from an educated position. Does that make sense? Because sometimes people, I don't want to talk to them because they're going to ask, what if they ask me a question that I can't handle? Just roll with it. I'll also tell you this. If you've done any type of evangelism, whether through one-on-one relationships or whether you street preach, you'll find that the questions are not all that new. Uh, They might wrap themselves up in different circumstances, but usually there's probably, I bet you, less than a dozen questions that people ask that you could probably put into that category and say, if I think through this, I bet you I can give this person hope. If I think through this, I bet you I can give that person help. But that aside, despite the fact that the questions aren't new and there's nothing new under the sun, don't think that you have to have an answer for everything in the world or you're not a good Christian. Does that make sense? We don't have to be able to handle every single question that's coming at us about every single thing that just hit somebody's newsfeed. We're there to preach the gospel. I think it's helpful to be well-read and to know a little something about what's what. Certainly the Puritans set that example for us. I mean, they were among the intellectually elite in their day and age. They were no, they, they were no lightweights when it came to understanding the times and understanding things. But on the flip side of that, don't think that you need to have a degree in some area in order to share the word of God. All you need to do is love Jesus. And like I said, the enemy would love nothing more than for you to delay telling someone about Jesus because you don't feel as smart as the person who needs to hear it. Paul says elsewhere in 1 Corinthians, For consider your calling, brothers, not many of you were wise according to what? Worldly standards. Not many were powerful, not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. God is used to using people like you and like me who have the implanted word of God within us to reach other people. He uses the lowly. He uses the despised. He uses what the world would call foolish to bring to shame what the world calls wise. Don't complicate things by thinking that you're not qualified. And finally, don't complicate things by thinking people need to straighten out their lives before believing the gospel. Don't complicate things by thinking people need to straighten out their lives before they would believe the gospel. I think we need to remember that when Christ saved Paul, he was a terrorist who was persecuting Christians. And he didn't clean up his act, and then the Lord called him. He was saved, and then God cleaned up his act. And then used him in ministry. Matthew was an active tax collector when Jesus asked him to follow him. In John chapter 4, Jesus offers salvation to a woman who had multiple husbands and was currently cohabitating and probably fornicating at the time. In John chapter 8, Jesus forgave the adulterous woman who was caught in the act of adultery. I don't know if you noticed that. She was caught in the act of adultery just hours before. So the notion that people need to clean up their act before they hear the gospel is just hogwash. People need to hear the gospel, hear the call of Christ, 
understand that there's hope and help in Christ and understand that they need to surrender themselves before the Lord and God will clean up their act for them. And it may not be easy. It's going to be hard. But they don't need to get themselves to a certain standard of living or to look a certain way or to put this aside first before they can come to Christ. Does that make sense? So we want to preach repentance. We want to preach change. We never want to preach repentance and change apart from Jesus Christ because then that's just better living. And there are plenty of people who change their lives for the better and then go to hell when they die. We want people to come as they are. And we also know that God's not going to leave them that way because Paul surrendered his life. And the woman at the well surrendered. The adulterous woman was told, go and what? Sin no more. It's not that God doesn't care. Christ doesn't care about how she lives her life. But he didn't say, okay, let's stone her first. And now, have you learned your lesson? Okay, go and... We need to remember that God saves people as they are and changes them into who he wants them to be. Not wait for God to change people to be who we want them to be so then they could be more palatable. I'm going to call the worship team up as I read these scriptures to you. Joel chapter 2 and verse 32. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. You know, in this sermon, as we've been taking time talking about how important it is for us to share the gospel and sow seeds. Since I don't know the condition of everyone's heart in this room. I don't know what type of soil you have in your heart right now for the gospel seed to be planted in. So you know what I'm going to do? What do you think I'm going to do? I'm going to sow seed. And I'm going to tell you that you in and of yourself are a sinner and you don't have to look far to find that to be true. Uh, that you are imperfect and that apart from God, you cannot please God. And that if you look back on your own life, you can see both within yourself and outside of yourself examples that would prove that you are a sinner and have rebelled against God's holy word. And that there's nothing you can do to save yourself. But God, who is rich in mercy, meaning he's not running out anytime soon and has some for you right now if that's what you need. God, who is rich in mercy, lavishes his grace upon sinners like you and like me. And the word of the Lord, as I'd read from Joel chapter 2, is true. It shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Today, if you believe that Jesus Christ died on the cross for sinners like you and like me, if you believe that he took the punishment that is due you, you will be saved from the wrath to come. You will be given mercy. You will be given saving grace. You will be given eternal life. You'll be given a new life and a new hope and a new home in heaven and a new person to live for and a new mission to fulfill and your life will have purpose and hope and help for this, your hour of need. Believing in Jesus Christ on the cross, believing that what he did was enough, that God is satisfied 
with the payment he paid for sinners like you and like me. Come to Christ and don't hold back. Today, right now, right now, don't ignore the tugging on your heart. Don't ignore the poke. If God is doing something in your life, submit to him. Surrender to him. Look to him and say, I surrender. I surrender. Lay it all down right now. Just lay it all down and go to him and be done. And say, Lord, I'm done. I surrender it all to you. I believe in you. Save me. Have mercy upon me, a sinner. Because just as I'm telling people, call people to come as they are. Don't wait for them to improve their life. I put that call out to you right now. You're not too young. You're not too old. You're not too far gone. Come as you are. Today is the day of salvation. God has given you another day of life. He has not called you into eternity. But Glenn Fry is dead. People die all the time. Today, if you hear his voice, harden not your hearts. Isaiah 1.18, come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are like crimson red, they shall become like wool. That's what God does. That's what his saving grace does. For God shows his own love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. I want you to see that snow resting on the side of the hillside. I want you to see the snow as it falls and think that's what God does. The snow is not a nuisance. It's a reminder to us of grace. God can make me whiter than snow, blot out all of my transgressions, even though they're red like scarlet. God is in the business of making it white, whiter than snow. Bow your heads if you would while I pray. Lord, there's not a single one of us in this room who doesn't know what it's like to be burdened in some way, shape, or form. What it's like to be ashamed. What it's like to wander far from where we need to be. And Lord, what I, what I would pray now, Lord, is that you would be pleased to even now do a saving work in someone's life. Call them home. Call them home. Lord, find the person who's wandered far from you. Call them home. Show them they don't need to be ashamed because they're always welcome at home in your presence. Lord, I pray that you would encourage them to come as they are right now while they have opportunity to bow the knee before you, to ask you to save them, to ask you to help them, to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ to turn from their ways. Lord, grant them repentance that they might please you with their lives. Lord, we ask you to do these things not for our sake, not even for the sake of the person who needs it, Lord, but do it chiefly for your sake and for your glory and for your name. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.